scripture lesson is from 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. I invite you to listen now for the word of God. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you, and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one whom I name to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? He said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, Samuel looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. He said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. Samuel said to Jesse, Are all of your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. He sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. The Lord said, Rise and anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Samuel then set out and went to Ramah. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm a big fan of the Antiques Roadshow. I don't know how familiar you are with that show on uh, National Public or Nashville Public Television. I can't tell you the number of times while my children were growing up that they would come into the bonus room and see that show on the uh, TV screen and exclaim, Dad, really? You're just so old. Maybe you've seen it uh, enough times to know how it works, those of you of, of a certain age, I suppose. 
The show travels around to different areas of the United States, and they bring along with them high-end appraisers from auction houses in New York City and Chicago and other places, and experts in every conceivable category of collectibles and antiques. They announced for several months out that they're going to be coming to uh, your city, and they invite anyone who has anything they think might be of worth, but they don't really know how much it's worth, to bring it on by, and they will look at it and appraise it. They'll tell you if it has any value. Now, I'm not a big antiques person. That's not really why I watch the show. I do have some things I'm going to take the next time they come to Nashville. But the reason I, I watch is for the, the, the high drama of the thing. I know it doesn't sound like it, but there's high drama in this thing. Uh, when they finally reveal to the person who's waiting with bated breath uh, what the thing they brought is actually worth. And I like to play the game of guessing. Is this going to be a high dollar thing or something that's not worth anything? And uh, my friend John and I are both big fans of the show, and he likes to say that the, the show combines his ignorance and the expert's knowledge to create a unique surprise every time. I will look at a piece and I'll say, 12 bucks. And the experts look at the piece and say, $3,000. Or I will look at something gilded and shiny and say $10,000. While the expert declares, maybe you get $50 for it at the auction. And I always walk away from the show saying, well, that's why they are the experts and I am not. They can see things that I cannot. And they always go into detail. Well, see, if you just notice this, this uh, curve here or the lack of a signature down here or the way that the T goes up instead of down, things I would never have thought to notice, they do. They see what I cannot. Saul, we are told, King Saul, among his many attributes, was a very tall man. That was the first thing everyone noticed in chapter 9 of 1 Samuel. He was well built, and historians say, like a soldier, impressive to look at. When he entered the room, he was the obvious choice to be the first king of Israel. They had, you know, demanded a king like all the other nations around them. We want a king like everyone else has. And Samuel, the prophet, had told them, God alone is your king. You do not need a king. But they clamored and clamored. And finally Samuel gave in and God gave in. And Saul stood before them. Freshly anointed. And Samuel was taken. And even God was swayed by his appearance. Here's what was said about Saul. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. He stood head and shoulders above everyone else. Impressive, King Saul. But something is off about him. 
And it doesn't take long for everyone to start noticing. Saul is deeply insecure. And his insecurity manifests in bursts of white hot anger. In haughtiness. In a complete lack of humility. Um, He does not recognize that his anointing has come from God. Has come from someone other than himself. Something is up with Saul's heart. Something is wrong with Saul's heart. For the ancient Hebrews, the heart was the seat of all emotions. It was used interchangeably with the word soul. The heart is the truest part of you. It's the the place where the person you, you really are comes through. It's where our intentions are formed. You ever hear someone say, well, God knows my heart. Or say about someone else, she has a heart of gold or she really has a good heart. And sometimes in the South, we'll say, bless her heart. (laughs) The thing that usually prompts such a defense, the statement is a defense of some behavior that has called into question the intentions of the person or your own intentions. And so you say about yourself or you say about someone else, well, God knows my heart. God knows what I meant. God knows what I intended. God knows who I really am, despite this thing that happened. And those are words that usually, in someone who has a good heart, Those are the words that usually precede an apology. David Brooks, columnist for the New York Times, calls it character. That's the word he would use for heart. Character. In his book, The Road to Character, he describes a central trait among all the people that he identifies in his book as having great character. They all display humility. David Brooks writes, The humble person is soothing and gracious, while the self-promoting person is fragile and jarring. Humility is freedom from the need to prove you are superior all the time. But egotism is a ravenous hunger in a small space. Self-concerned, competitive, always hungry for accolades. Humility is infused with gratitude. Thankfulness, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Michael Ramsey, said, Thankfulness is a soil in which pride does not easily grow. Character is rather intangible. And usually cannot be seen so much in the words one speaks, but in the actions one takes. Especially when a person is given a lot of power. Which brings us back to King Saul. His actions belie a man whose heart is sick. Whose character is deeply flawed. He's driven by a kind of narcissism that makes him incapable, it seems, of recognizing this in himself. 
But God sees. And in a remarkable admission, God says, I am sorry. I repent that I anointed Saul to be king. Even God got caught up in the campaign rhetoric. Even God was transfixed by appearances. But now, he knows. So in sovereign freedom, God plans a coup. God intends to anoint a new king while the old king is still on the throne. And God's already selected the king. And since the reluctant prophet Samuel, Samuel knows what happens when you anoint a new king while the old king is still alive. That usually doesn't end well for the person doing the anointing. But God sends this reluctant prophet to backwater Bethlehem, to the house of Jesse, of the tribe of Benjamin, the smallest of the tribes of Israel, one of his sons will be king. A bit reluctantly, and with some divinely sanctioned deceptions at the ready, Samuel gets the elders of the city to let him in. They too know that when the government shows up, it's usually to take and not to give. So they're a little bit reluctant until Samuel says, we're just here to worship. We're just here to sacrifice. And they let him in. And he takes his place in the home of Jesse, asking to see his sons. Seven of them. Samuel counts them. One, two, three, seven. He must be feeling good already. Seven is a good number in the Bible. Seven days of creation. It's a complete number. It's, a, it's the kind of number that's a good sign in the Old Testament. And when Samuel sees the Eliab first, he just can't help himself. Surely this is the one. He must have been quite impressive to look at. Surely this is the one, he thinks. Very kingly looking. But God will have none of it. They had already been down this road once, you remember? There's more, God says, to human beings, much more than appearances can reveal. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Next is Abinadab, not chosen. Shema passes by, not chosen. Each of the seven passed before Samuel, not chosen, not chosen, not chosen, not chosen. And then there are no more, as far as Samuel knows. All seven have not been chosen. And they have come to the end. It feels like a closed tomb. A terminal diagnosis. Hope in the past tense. It's an ending. All the options have been exhausted. But something, someone, prompts Samuel to ask the question. Thank God he asks the question 
Because if he hadn't, that might have been the end. Is this all? Is this it? Have all the choices been exhausted? Is the circle closed? Is the future forfeited? It seems at once a question to Jesse and to God. Have you brought me all the way out here to Bethlehem at great risk to come up dry, empty? Is there no one with heart in this place? And a bold act of faith and courage and deep trust, Samuel dares ask the question that seems absurd. Are all your sons here? Is there an eighth son? Is there an unimagined possibility? Is there an abundance beyond the seemingly closed circle of seven? Does God see something none of us can see? Jesse is perplexed. Well, yes, there is one more. He's so insignificant that he wasn't even brought in for the meeting. He's so young that Jesse doesn't think to include him in the festivities. He's out in the fields on the edges of things, tending sheep. And something you can tell clicks in Samuel. And he says, nobody make a move. Nobody sit down. Send and bring him. We will not sit down until he comes here. That had to be an awkward meeting at that point. Imagine the scene. Takes a while to retrieve David. He's off in the field somewhere. We don't even know his name yet. Everything is frozen in place. Maybe somebody said, this bad weather we've been having here lately. <laughs> Everything stops. All the elders, all the older brothers, all the powerful people waiting for the shepherd boy. And then he appears. This is the one, the Lord says. And the narrator can't help but go right back to the old way of looking at things. He was ruddy and he had beautiful eyes and he was handsome. At first, it seems a little bit ironic that the first thing said about him should have to do with outward appearances. But notice what was said about him that was not said about Saul. His eyes. His beautiful eyes. You know, they say eyes are the window to the soul. And God's eyes have looked upon this man's eyes that see as God sees. Now, David will not be a perfect king. Far from it. But time and time again, especially in his moments of failure, especially then, David always orients himself to God, returns to God, confesses to God, is centered in God, humbly, 
even in failure. He has a good heart this morning. He is the king. He will be Israel's greatest king. If they had been parading the sons of Jesse in front of the screen on the Antiques Roadshow, I would have said 12 bucks. But God looks on the heart. God truly sees. I've talked about the symbolism of our baptismal font before, how most Christian fonts are eight-sided, including this one here. There are eight sides to a font because in baptism, we enter the eighth day of creation, the new day, the new creation. The eighth day is the open tomb, the new life where death seemed triumphant. God's ability to open a door that forever seemed closed and locked. Every Christian church, every Christian person is a person of the eighth day. Invited, invited to see the world through eyes of abundance. A world teeming with the abundant grace of God. A wash in possibilities of which we have not yet begun to dream. We will not give in to cynicism, those of us who claim Christ, but we will live in hope. We will not give in to fear, those of us who follow Jesus, but we will trust. We will not give in to hate, those of us who claim these waters, but will love. This is what it means to live in the eighth day, to see as God sees. So church, let us not be afraid. Whenever we sense a closed door, a lack of possibility, let us ask in bold faith like Samuel did. Is this all? Is there yet one more blessing? One more son? One more day? We will not sit down. We will not stop trusting until they are here. Amen. Amen.